But verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of these and of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word, and let's ask his blessing in our study of it. Father in heaven, we thank you again, having found ourselves in your house on your day. Lord, we thank you for the songs we can sing, especially the memorable ones we sing each year and the truth that's contained therein. Lord, would you use all of this, including each other, as we study collectively. Show us what these things mean. And Lord, would you give us what's necessary to be obedient to them. And this for your glory. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, because this is a two-parter, it would probably uh, be worth a moment or two to back the truck up, as it were, and try to connect with where we left off. We left Paul in Athens, and really that's literally what took place. He was alone. Uh, he had left Berea in the night because there were some people seeking his harm. The same was true in Thessalonica. It's kind of a pattern on not just the second missionary journey, but the first one as well. And having gone alone, we read of his waiting and what he saw, how he felt, and what he did. And then the last point, which would be today's portion, is what he said. But if you recall, Paul seemed to be overcome with, with what he saw. And it wasn't described at all as what other people would say if they took a trip to Athens. It's beautiful. It's remarkable. It, it, it's uh, one of the wonders of the world. But Paul saw a city full of idols. That's what he saw. And Luke tells us that it bothered him in his soul. It grieved his spirit. 
So what did he do about it? Well, he taught in the synagogues on the Sabbath, but then every other day, maybe including the Sabbath, it said every day he spoke in the open market, the agora, to whoever would show up and listen. Now, having done that for some time, the folks who spend time at the Areopagus, which is just a few yards really from the Parthenon, invited him to speak. He sounds like he's got some things we'd like to hear. And some calling him a babbler. We talked about that last week. It's almost as if they want to try to help him, having concluded that this man is just cherry-picking certain things from different places and cobbling together his own religion. He couldn't be further from the truth, but he actually shows up. Of course he is. Anywhere there's an audience, Paul the Apostle is going to give witness to Jesus And there he is. We just read about it in verse 22. So let's start with that fifth point from last week. What did Paul say? Well, in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst, he's there in the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are a very religious people. Now, if you've got a differing translation than the ESV, it might have superstitious. And it's kind of uh, interesting to choose which is the better, very religious, because it's a form of a religion, but it's very complicated, very dramatic. They've got a God for just about everything. We read that they're so superstitious about a God for everything that they've even accounted for a God they may have missed, and they have an altar to the unknown God, a God we don't know. But in case he's there somewhere out there, we've got a place to worship him. I don't know if that altar got much action or not. I mean, it it can't be but so exciting to worship a God you know nothing about. But it's there. That's how he starts. Before so, actually, we kind of want to see it as a courteous remark about their religiosity. It's a way to, to break the ice and to open his remarks. I've observed over my time here waiting that you're a very religious people. Um, and then when he goes further, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also this inscription, the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's not ready to challenge their idolatry yet, but does begin by taking up their own acknowledgement of their ignorance. Now, that's a brilliant way to start speaking to a group where you know in your head you're on different sheets of paper and you're going to try to argue toward your sheet which is going to tell them their sheet is less important. Now you could accelerate or, or, or uh, you know, build from there, but how do you do that? You meet somebody, you understand maybe quickly. You're not on the same page. How do you broach the subject well he has a wide open berth doesn't he they have an altar to an unknown god so he says let's talk about that one not as if he's saying that that unknown god is jehovah god but since you have in your system of thinking a box for a god you don't know we'll start right there and let me tell you about mine that's where he begins and then from here on there are at least five points, arguments 
of whatever you want to refer to them as, I, I, I think probably most adequately would be truth claims. He's going to claim that he has possession of the truth having to do with God in these five ways. And the first, God is the creator of the universe. Now we get that in Genesis 1.1. But these are Athenians. We don't know if they have a copy of the Hebrew scriptures, including Genesis 1.1 or not. But he tells them, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, not far from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, As far as... uh, Those that are in attendance and listening, Epicureans, Stoics, we talked about them last week. This claim, as he begins to unravel it, is an attempt at some logical bedrock. If you're going to explain to someone that their page isn't as good as yours, that their news is not as good as your news, I mean, again, you've got to get there. But look what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What do you think? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made them. He kind of gets to say what happens with all of it, right? So to think that he would go to the trouble to make a world, everything in it, so that the people he made in his likeness would build him a shrine... So he'd finally have a place to live. Not really. That doesn't really make sense. If you're the most powerful being in existence, why would you take such a demotion? I've brought up the ant farm from time to time because I find out, I think it's a good way to look at it. I don't know that anybody will get an ant farm for Christmas. Has anybody had an ant farm in a while? I remember I had to mail off for the ants. They sent the ants through the mail in a little tube. And it was cold because I did get it for Christmas. And I thought they're all dead. They're just cold. You had to like let them lay there and warm up. But suppose I put them in and come back a few weeks later after they've made all their tunnels. And real tiny, I have to take a magnifying glass and look, they've constructed a sign that says, Hey, Isaac, your house is ready. And we want you to come live with us because we think you're the best ridiculous. God's going to create a universe, but for him to have any recognition at all, he's got to come live in the little temple that we made for him, along with others that we think deserve a temple too. So that, that's really his first argument for logic. The God who made everything, and he's Lord of heaven and earth because he made it, does not live in temples made by man. That would not make sense. Second of all, God is the sustainer of life, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's his second shot. We breathe, we live, plants grow, we're able to eat them. Uh, We are dependent in every way. But the God who made us, we can't expect to be dependent, especially on his creatures. That wouldn't make sense. It'd be more absurd to think that the one who sustains life would need himself to be sustained. If he supplies our need, why would he need our service? Now, it would be good to remember 
back to uh, Clash of the Titans or wherever you want to learn about Greek mythology. The gods seemed to need the prayers of the people in order to regain or maintain their strength. A god that fell out of favor with the people the people wouldn't pray to. And you know that in the stories, they went about trying to gain the prayers from the people by different ways. Some were good to them and they blessed them. Some would curse them and bring them pain and they would pray to be free of the pain. It's all made up, of course, but that's the way they think. So Paul is trying to untangle these, this faulty thinking. Then there's the third point. God is the ruler of all nations. Verse 26, he made from one man, we know that man to be Adam, every nation of mankind, those are his descendants, to live on all the face of the earth. And then he goes on to say, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for the dwelling place, this would probably be describing the epochs of history along with the migrations that are involved, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, why would they need to feel their way toward him and find him? Well, because according to the Hebrew scriptures, after the Garden of Eden, that relationship has been estranged. God ran them out of the garden and put a flaming sword to make sure they didn't come back. So even with the people that he chose and separated from the rest of the world, it's not the same as walking in the cool of the evening with God personally. So the further you are from his chosen people, the more it might look like they're feeling their way toward him in hopes to find him. But then Paul says, yet he's actually not far from each of us because the rest of the story is he dwelt with us and died in our place on the cross. And before it's all over, he's going to say that's the appointed man to judge the world because God has let everybody know because he raised him from the dead. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. He made us, he rules over us, and we should know him is the trajectory of that argument. His fingerprints are on everything. It would be foolish to blame him for not knowing him because he's not far from each of us. Fourth, God is the father of human beings. Now, there's some semantics you can apply to this. Some people would say that all humans are God's children in the extent that he made Adam and Eve and they all descend from the first man and first woman, yes, he's the father of humanity. But we walked off from him in Adam and Eve and it requires his son to buy us back. So there's another way we describe ourselves as God's children and that's through the adoption made possible by the cross. It's grace, redemption, getting saved, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so, if he's saying he's made all of us, that is true. Um, but being the father of human beings, verse 28, for in him we live and move, have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. So, he's quoting some of their poets. They should be familiar with such things. Back to the poetry, for we are indeed his offspring. That's one of the Greeks words. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, he goes back to his original argument. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's yards away from the Parthenon. Again, there's that big, massive golden 
an ivory statue of Athena, the god of, goddess of war. The tip of the spear was gold, and if the sun hit it right, you could see it from 40 miles away, so they say. He's saying if this god is true, uh, he not only doesn't need us to build him a temple, he doesn't need us to serve him. He sustains our life, so he doesn't need our service. He rules all nations, and he's the father of all beings. So if he's our father, which one of you has a golden statue for a dad and a marble statue for a mom? Representation of, but you act like that's actually them. You worship the images. It doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't think any of us have any idols at home. I, I came from an independent Baptist background, so a lot of things got called idols. You can imagine growing up in that background when American Idol comes along. That's absolutely straight from the devil, right? I remember a missionary who had uh, a little carving he found at a yard sale on the mission field and used it in one of his pictures, and he he called it Mr. Tumnus from C.S. Lewis's stuff. But he got some feedback. You shouldn't be putting an idol in your prayer letters to your supporters. He's like, it's just a carved piece of... Oh, yeah, okay, I'll get rid of it. Um, but you could put all of the... There's, you never wake up one morning in Athens and found out that having left you know, these statues alone, there's a lot of tiny little statues running around as a result even though in their mythology those gods came to earth and were involved in all kinds of things. Paul is trying to get them to see this is goofy. Um, The guy who made it all, sustains it all, rules it all, isn't made out of gold or stone or an image and certainly not as the result of your imagination or art. So he's personal. That's where he is in the argument now. You don't know him. You can know him. He's a personal being. He's made himself known to us, and a relationship is possible. But I want to go back to part of that previous verse. We'll spend a little more time here because it's fascinating. Um, In verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Again, that's a quotation from one of the Greek's poets might not sound like much, but those three things, life, movement, and being, not only were, but continue to be the greatest intellectual issues of ancient and modern philosophy. You say, really? Boy, if I'd had that at test time or for the pop quiz, philosophy class. But yeah, that's it. Those those are the questions that boggle the mind. They, They really can't be completely unwound because we have no reference point at the extremity of the implications of of such thought. Life, movement, and being. So think about it. He starts out, in him we live. Is there a bigger question to the inquiring mind that wants to know than where life comes from? Originally. Where was the spark of life formed? Now, in our culture, Western American... Uh, our children are taught that the answer to that question is chance. Chance is a, is a 
not sophisticated, but it's got a lot less baggage than the word accident, (laughs) right? We learned the word accident in the sandbox. When mom and dad come out and say, what's wrong with the two of you? Well, it was on accident, which is the opposite of on purpose. If there's purpose, there's design. And if mom and dad come out and find out somebody's crying in the sandbox on purpose, there are repercussions for that. On accident, maybe you get off, maybe you don't, depending on who's telling the truth. But to think of that, life happened as a result of an accident then you can't assign any purpose to it. And if there's no purpose to it, how in the world could you assign dignity to it? So we're going to teach the children that their lives began with an accident. And then, by implication, when they die, they go back to nothingness, no purpose, no dignity. But then expect them to have meaning and dignity between the bookends of purposeless meaninglessness. That's not going to wash. And none of us believe that stuff anyway. But to think of it, an accident. And on top of it all, none of the rules of the universe in which we live that can be observed scientifically work with that either. And I told you my watch broke. I use, I use this now. It's my phone. Um, But I heard a guy one time say, you can test this theory if you have a lot of time. A lot of time. Take your watch. I'd say, forget the watch. Take your cell phone. Take it home. Put it in a paper bag. And then find an appropriate sized framing hammer. And just beat it until you can't beat it up into any more pieces. Now, don't mess the bag up. That's important. You might need a new bag after you've done that. Put all the pieces in the bag and then just shake it until it's fixed. And works. Oh, and charges itself. And finds the cell tower. And then text everybody. Problem solved. You're never going to go from a state of disorder to order on that level. And that right there isn't even comparable to humanity and DNA and your thinking and love. Anybody even want to take a stab at trying to explain in words what that stuff is? Ask Siri what it is. She doesn't know. (laughs) Because it's bigger than that. And that's going to happen by accident, by random chance. Something like shaking a bag. And the world's got way more elements to choose from in your list of what needs to get together in order to make the life spark. No, we believe it came from some other place. We believe that in Him we live. The real damage occurs from the implications of that, and that's the meaninglessness. If in the middle, if if we weren't designed and we're going to nowhere, then how in the world do we have any meaning at all? Let's go to the next step. He also said, in Him we move. Movement has also been a tricky philosophical topic. We think of movement um, getting from point A to point B. I mean, you were in your home this morning, now you're in church. You moved, right? Some of you have been moving around in your seat, some of trying to sit still. Um, science talks about things that are at rest tend to stay at rest, things that are moving tend to stay moving. 
when the Greeks were thinking about movement, they had more, more in mind um, change rather than just movement. Everything is changing. Movement, you know, um, in assisted living, they might call it locomotion, right? Someone can locomote or not, depending on, you know, what little Eva's saying about, right? Locomotion. Even, even her baby sister can do it with ease. Easy as learning your ABCs. Y'all are staring at me. Did you not ride in the car with your parents with oldies on? So come on, come on, do the locomotion with me. Now we'll get somewhere. Sometimes I think we have a failure to communicate with music, that is. And some are thinking, how old is he? Like 65, 75? Does he listen to anything modern? It's more than just moving from point A to point B. It's, it's the stuff that uh, Heraclitus would write about when he'd say, you can't step into a river twice, the same river. Because by the time you put your foot in and you've taken it out, that river's moved downstream. It's not the same river anymore. And you're not the same man anymore. You're older. Time has passed. Even down to your cellular structure, things have changed. So the philosophers have a big problem with movement. And it only compounds when you apply scale. I have been told that some people have lost their mind thinking about infinity. I mean, you can think about it. Just take two and double it. You got four. Then you got, what, eight, then 16, then 32. You can keep doing that forever until you don't have a planet big enough to house the zeros behind it. You can also do that in reverse. It's not infinity. It's called infinitesimal. Best way I've heard to describe this is um, you've got a home game. The visiting team has uh, caused you to punt. You punt. It's a good punt. It lands on the one-yard line, and they're in their red zone. And uh, you've got home field advantage, so you can start screaming as loud as you want. And hopefully you can confuse the snap count and cause a penalty and put them not at three feet from the goal line, but how much? There's a rule for this. It's a five-yard penalty, but not in that situation. It's what? Half the distance to the goal line. Now, how many times can that penalty be called because you're screaming so loud they can't hear the snap count until that ball is in the end zone? Now, somebody's probably thinking, well, if the end of it gets through, then somewhere about, I don't know, four and a half inches, maybe, four penalties. But if the center of the ball counts, you'll never get there because you can always half the distance down to what? Molecules. What about space between the molecules? Again, you'll lose your mind trying to think, how can I keep subdividing all these little pieces? What's the point in all this? We all move. And when we're moving within things that we're used to, we feel safe. But if you start talking about infinity, you lose your bearing. You lose your reference point. It gets scary. Which would you rather? Be in the middle of open space? with nothing to hang on to but just float? Or like, I don't know, stuck in your dryer? 
claustrophobic. I hate that. But I'd hate the thought of being lost in space too. What about aging? That's movement. Any of you afraid of aging? My children are aging. I'm afraid of their aging. I, we had a deal. None of you go past five. They've all broken it. Livy, three times already. Does the passing of time make us uneasy? I'm changing. My kids are changing. My father's changing. What about 30 years worth of ministry with a guy who, you know, because of the grace of, of God, was known to be able to hold his own in a pulpit? And we've got those recordings we can look back on, but he's not capable of doing that anymore. Most of those memories he does not have access to because of a disease that seems to sneak in in the night and remove the memories never to be accessed again. If in him we live, and if it's true that in him we move, then that means God has ordained these days we live. And that means that the state my father's mind now exists in is holy, of purpose, that God in heaven has a reason for it. I don't want the alternative that the devil got through and accosted this man while he ministered for the cause of Christ. You're going to tell me that the devil got through the fence? And that I just have to write it off because he's the devil and God can't control him? No, in him we live and in him we move. There's no such thing as an unholy moment. Every moment is holy. If you're a child of God and you can see these things from Scripture, there's one more. In him we have our being. This is probably the most sophisticated of them all. Um, but I think I'll just I'll try, to, try to wrap it up as quickly as possible for sake of time. Being is, is another... I mean, what do they do first day in philosophy class? If you've ever been to one, they, they try to make you prove that you exist, that, that you are or that you be. I don't know that that's good English. But I'm pretty sure that I be. I'm pretty sure that you be. It's being. Where'd it come from? Are we sure it's not just a big dream? Well, that, there's more arguments if that's the way you want to look at it. In him we have our being. Here's the best way I know to get to the point. Imagine a time where there was absolutely nothing. Now, if that were true, if there was a time where there's absolutely nothing, then what would be now? Nothing. You're not going to get something out of nothing unless you break the rules that run this universe we live in, right? Have you ever got something for nothing? No, it's a gimmick. They're just trying to get more money out of you. There's never something for nothing. Um... So if there is something, something has always been. We believe that something that always has been is the God who made everything in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, who then separated light from darkness and water. He started moving right after he got done. 
And then with breathing his life into the nostrils of the man made of dirt, he became a living soul. So it's God who's responsible for each of these things. So now we're to the fifth argument. That fourth one took more of our time. The fifth is this. God is the judge of the world. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is a reference to the fact that God had been unbelievably patient over the years, not only with his chosen people who also made gods and worshiped them, but the lost world who did this too. Did you catch the word commandment in the previous verse? God winked at those times of ignorance, but now he commands everyone. It doesn't sound like an invitation, does it? How many of you have had an invitation already to a Christmas party sometime this month? Maybe it was a real fancy one and it involved the RSVP, but you know the difference between an invitation and, say, a subpoena, right? If any of you ever got one of those lovely letters from Uncle Sam, that's not an invitation. It's compulsory. And if God's going to make this world and maintain his holiness, if he doesn't do that, he doesn't exist. He can't not do that. And the world has sinned against him through Adam and Eve. There's certain rules he's bound by. He can't just sweep all that sin under the rug. But he can give his sinless son, who has never sinned, and pour his wrath out on him in your stead, providing you with a way out. Um, we, we go to different lengths to try to e- explain what that offer is as far as the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, at the end of a church service, especially in, in, in a service where, say, you've got an evangelist, what, what, what traditionally has the end of the service always been called? An invitation. Come receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, that's the way I would describe it. You would describe it. All of us would describe it. It's not the way God describes it. God calls it a command because there's no other way. Uh, and he's bound by his own holiness to make sure that that's correct. Look at verse 31. Why does God command us to repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now that is about as clear and articulate a statement as you're going to find in Scripture. And the substance of, uh, you may be familiar with an old Baptist preacher, R.G. Lee. He was at Bellevue Baptist, a pastor between him and, uh, it's a word I'm looking for, Adrian Rogers. But the name of the famous sermon, I think he delivered it a thousand times. Payday someday. But that someday's coming. Now in this verse, we've not been given the day, but we have been given the identity of the judge. 
And on that day, wherever it is on the Lord's calendar that his father knows that he doesn't, that day will be judged by the appointed man. And the man will be unmistakable. There's no way you can miss him. He's the only one on the face of the planet to survive the wrath of God promised in the Garden of Eden on sin. What is the wage of sin? Death. And he survived it. Now other men were raised from the dead, but then they died. Not Jesus. He's alive. We, what was this question this morning? Where is Jesus? Right hand of the throne of the Father, interceding, having conquered sin, death, and the grave. God has assured the world that they can't miss him because he's the only one. No other religion can boast such a thing either. If you're just going to line up all the religion, there's one key difference in this one and all the rest, and it's that the Savior is alive. The other ones are dead. And the other ones, you have to work yourself to a spot of righteousness, hopefully enough to outweigh the balance of your bad deeds, and maybe you'll be smiled upon. With this one, you can't pay off any of them. Only he can do it because he's the only sinless one. He'll do it in your place or it won't be done at all. That's the gospel. You can't miss it. It's as clear as crystal. Said by Paul the Apostle in the Areopagus of all places. So far, he's proclaimed God, Jehovah God, (laughs) yards from the Parthenon, where was displayed the pantheon of Greek mythological religion. But he has claimed as truth that this God, they call the unknown God, is creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and judge. And that's where Paul rests his case. By the time you get to verse 32, you find out what happens next. Now, when they'd heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. It's the same thing that always happens when he preaches. Some believe, some don't. It's the same thing that happens to this day. Some believe and some don't. Now, what did Paul say at the Areopagus? Which is another way of saying what had he said with what he was saying. You know, some people can say something in a sentence or two. And other people have a very illustrious career by saying everything but the kitchen sink and saying nothing at all. What is he saying with what he had said? Basically, I think you could boil it down to this. He is asking the men of the Areopagus what they plan to do with Jesus, God's Son. And that's still the most important question you'll ever face and one you must answer. If there is a God and He made this world and He sent His Son to pay a debt you could never pay, then what difference does that make in your life? And have you done anything about it? Paul said he commands everyone repent and believe. This is one of those things where there's really no spectators. Either you think this is foolishness or it's real. And if it's real, it demands your action. You you can't believe that that. It's like believing that the stove is hot but deciding, well, I'm going to lick it anyway. It's ridiculous. 
Life is full of those things. We know this, so we can't do this or we have to do this accordingly. This is the world's best example of such a thing. What have you done with Jesus? Now, I think Paul's dealing with this crowd is remarkable. No doubt Luke didn't give us a word-for-word transcript of Paul's message. There are some that say, where's the cross? He hasn't mentioned it. There's no way he didn't. He's not going to get to the man raised from the dead without more to say. We know what he's talking about. But you have to kind of give him credit for, for starting in Athens and concluding in Jerusalem. Some of us don't know much about one or the other. I've listened to preachers, and you would think all they know is Athens. All they do is watch television. They keep up with the latest trends. They never seem to make it to the cross. Jerusalem, we're on a hill outside the city. The Son of God paid for our sins. But there's others that they just stay in Jerusalem. And they use words not unlike the Jews to where a Greek could spend half his life and never figure out what they're actually talking about. The, the language is so bible and churchy. But to have a foot in both, the world we live in, and the world to come, and knowing the difference between the two. In fact, you can start either way. You can start in Jerusalem, go to Athens, but you always must conclude in Jerusalem. You can't leave your sermons such that they fit on an altar to an unknown God. You have to explain who he is and what he did Paul did it magnificently. Keep these in mind. They're not tricks. It's not even rhetoric. It's just finding a winsome way to unfold the truth that surely must be believed. I think that's enough for a Sunday. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glimpse into a, 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 a dramatic afternoon a man that you apprehended on the road to Damascus, a man who was smart, but a man who was wrong. But you gave him what he needed, and he finds himself in a very high place, speaking to very important people, but courageously telling them, you don't dwell in houses made with hands. You don't need anything. You've appointed a day where you will judge our sins by a man who himself was sinless but tasted the consequences of every last single sin. Surely he's the one worthy to call us out and to wrap us up in an embrace. Not only having paid it all, but forgotten it all. Lord, would you give us whatever we need to get excited enough to be courageous like Paul, if necessary to start in Athens, but to take the world to Jerusalem. Thank you 
for our word, your scriptures, for time to study it, and for an imagination to think what you might do with it. If we'll give you free reign of our lives, our love, our energy, Lord, would you be so pleased to do such a thing? We ask this in your precious name. Amen.